It is on the name of Jesus that we call church this morning, that we are going to be in his presence, um, which is really, as we've been going through Exodus, what God is really after in his people. And uh, as we are in Exodus this morning, it has been a fun journey, and I've been saying we're going to get to this point for some time. We're at the end. So if you've enjoyed Exodus, there's maybe a part of you that's sad. Some of you are like, great, spend an entire year on sermons out of the same book. Um, we're ready for something else. We're going to finish chapter 40 this morning, church. Uh, since Andrew walked us through chapter 39 last week, and I, I, I did not ask him to do this, but he did a wonderful job tying in kind of how the, the priesthood was designed and all the garments and things to our definition of a disciple. Uh, if you guys have been coming more recently, I honestly, when he was saying it, I was trying to remember the last time I had been calling it out. But part of our vision casting that we did last year was we had a definition of a disciple where we said, when we talk about discipleship at New River Fellowship, this is what we mean. And we said that a disciple is a devoted, developing, deployed follower of Jesus Christ. And Andrew did a really good job of walking through chapter 39, kind of showing, hey, yeah, that's what God was after in Exodus 39, just like he was after of his people in the New Testament. So as we move into chapter 40 this morning, we're going to kind of almost put a, a nice bow on everything. I'm going to take next week to kind of hit some of the, the major things out of the entire book to make sure, hey, we, we got everything out of Exodus that we, we needed to. But chapter 40 is a really good summary of everything that Moses has been trying to get across to the people that God has been trying to show his people, hey, this is what it is to be mine. That if you're going to call yourself by my name, if you're going to walk with me for us today, the, the way we might phrase it is if we're going to put our faith in Jesus and be the church, what does it look like? Moses kind of ties it together in chapter 40 this morning, and we're going to kind of see there's three major things that Moses points to that we've seen in the entire book, church. But really, what God is after in his people. He's reconciling his people and anointing them with his spirit to bear his covenant fruit. So you can think of it in three things. Reconciliation, he's working to make everything right with him. Anointment, he's looking to, as he's making things right, fill it with his spirit. And fruit-bearing, as he fills it with his spirit, as he's made it right with him, he's purposed it to do something intentional, and what that is, is bearing his fruit. So we're going to begin in chapter 40, verse 1, and we're going to finish Exodus today. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring it in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. 
Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water and consecrate them. Oh, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, verse 16. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, he set up its frames, he put in its poles, and he raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles into the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the screen. And he screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and he put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. And he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then I love the picture at the end, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Lord, we are grateful this morning uh, just for the, the journey that you have been walking us through as we've gone through Exodus. Father, it's been a, an honor. Uh, it's been pretty humbling, too, to get to be confronted each week with the reality of who you are and who you've made us to be as a result of that. So, God, as we, as we read Moses' words, as he's trying to kind of one last time remind the people of Israel, hey, this is who God is. And because of that, this is who he's made you to be. Father, may we hear your word. May our, our hearts be ready to receive it. Father, may we leave all of our distractions uh, at your feet. Lord, grateful, grateful for the families that you've brought us today. In your name we pray, amen. Churches, we're looking at Exodus 40. One of the big things that jumps out to me at the very beginning, is that as God has given all these directions about here's how you build this, here's how you go about making this, 
he, he gives Moses one last set of instructions. The first eight verses is God telling Moses, this is how you're going to actually build the thing, right? Like, I've given you all the directions, you've made all the pieces, now I'm going to tell you how to put it together. And even in doing this, there is an intentionality to what God is doing. And church, this morning what it shows us is the first part of what God is after in his people is reconciliation. That when God is making, literally building all of these pieces together, what he's after is reminding his people, hey, I, I'm working to reconcile you. Like in all things, I want you to be right with me. That starts with, you know, this kind of initial entering into the covenant, what we might say kind of, you know, praying to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it continues. And every day we are learning to be right with God. God says, this is what I'm after. If you look at the first eight verses, guys, you notice that Moses builds from the inside out. Those of you who are builders know that you never build a house from the inside out. If you built it from the inside out, everything would get wet. Everything would be exposed to the elements. It's a very vulnerable way to build a house if you don't put up the walls and the roof and the structure first. But God tells Moses to build kind of the opposite. He says in verse 1, start with, start with the tabernacle, which was the very middle. In verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, he says, put everything in the middle that's supposed to be there first. The ark goes in the tabernacle, verse 3. The lampstand and the table go in there, verse 4. The altar, the incense, verse 5. He says, start with the very middle. Then in verse 6, you see, okay, now he steps out. He says, put together the, you know, the burnt offering altar and the basin. These things that were not inside the tabernacle, but they were still inside the whole temple area. In verse 8, you get the last piece. And then, hey, lastly, build up all the walls. Put up the court, the, the, the curtains that went all the way around and put up the gate. If you guys remember, this is a while ago. I can't remember which chapter it was. I believe the court ended up being like 10 to 15 feet tall, the walls. So God's telling Moses, build the walls around the temple last because they're going to be watching you build the actual physical little tabernacle. They're going to be watching you put all the pieces to the inside. This is not an accident. God is telling Moses, hey, I want them to see you build the tabernacle. If you guys remember, what was the significance of the tabernacle? Man, everything about the tabernacle pointed to reconciliation. That God says, I want my people to be able to see this work taking place. Because this is primarily, first and foremost, what am I after in my people? What does it mean to be the people of God begins with reconciliation. If you remember from chapter 25, the ark was where all the words of the covenant, right? The, the Ten Commandments, all this stuff that's been written down, all of that was placed inside the ark. Uh, some of the artifacts, like there's some bread. Uh, I think there was some, some manna, some honey that, uh, that came with Israel out of Egypt. Just everything that was supposed to remind Israel, this is what it is to be right with God. All of that went inside the ark. So all of Israel is going to be watching Moses bring the ark into the tabernacle. Then they're going to see the table brought in. We talked about how that, that was fellowship. That fellowship is required for reconciliation. That is, as God makes us right with them, he says, hey, I want you to be with me. The Hebrew mindset was, hey, come have a meal with me. That's how you know if we're right, we get to eat together. 
So Israel would have watched the, temp- or the table go in. They would have watched the lampstand go in. You know, this, this imagery that God's life is what he's offering in his reconciliation. Hey, as I'm making you right with me, people of Israel, I'm going to give you my life as your own. And then in chapter 26, talked about how the, the tabernacle, man, that, that is where the reconciliation happens. That's where God's presence came down and dwelt with his people. So as God is telling Moses to build the temple, he says, hey, start with this. Don't let the people miss this. If you build the walls first, nobody's going to see what's taking place on the inside. God tells Moses, I need my people to understand that what I'm really after in them is reconciliation. I want them to be right with me. And I don't just want the sacrifice to be given so that they're, in our modern language, we would use the word saved, right? That salvation is just the beginning. That God says, I want you to be made right with me today, and I want you to be made right with me. I'm going to show you what that looks like, that you've, now that you've, you know, made Christ your Lord and Savior, I'm going to have to learn about all the ways that brokenness, that sin has affected me. I'm going to have to learn to bring it back under God's image. God says, this reconciliation work, I want my people to know I'm after this. That if you're going to be my people this is what I want of you, to be made right. Now we're going to get to why God kind of starts here in a moment, why this piece is important, but for now, this is the first part of the goal. The second piece God introduces is this, this picture of anointing. Um, I, don't, I don't really have a good way of describing it, church. Anointing's not really something that we talk about much today. I, I'm curious if any of you guys have ever even used the word anoint outside of church. It's, it's kind of a word that describes something big going on in scripture that we don't use a whole lot. But anointing is key. And the more I thought about this, I, we'll get to this later, but I, I think there's a reason why we don't use anointing that much today. But God calls Moses to anoint everything in the temple once he's made it. And anointing is big. Church, here's, here's kind of what Moses is getting after. In verse 9, he says, He's called to anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. These two things, anointing and consecrating, kind of go together in Scripture, like peanut butter and jelly. You know, Having one without the other is nice, but it's, something still feels missing. Anointing and consecrating go together. The two verbs there, one is mashak, which is what we get anoint from. It means to smear with oil. So they're literally smearing oil on everything. Surely you do that after you place things because if Moses is covering everything in oil, it's going to be very slippery to move at that point. So after everything gets placed, God says, go cover it in oil. But then the consecrate piece comes from the verb kadash, which means to set apart as sacred. So what's going on is Moses is putting everything in its place, Then he's covering it in oil, which seems odd for us. We don't cover most things in oil unless we're about to cook it. And then somehow that the fact that it was covered in oil was going to tell everybody that's been set aside for God's special purpose, for God's special plan. There, and this is especially important. We see it's the tabernacle gets this in verse 9. The burnt offering altar gets this in verse 10. The basin in verse 11. But then we're even told Aaron and his sons are anointed in verses 12 through 15. That literally everything, people included, 
is being covered in oil. I don't know if you've ever taken a bath or a shower in oil. Uh, I'm sure most of you probably haven't. There's a reason we don't do that, because oil is very sticky. Oil's not great for our skin. O oils are not, well, not, I'm thinking of cooking oil the whole time I'm saying this, but it, just the imagery of having to be covered in cooking oil is not something that sounds very pleasant to me. Till I realized that what's going on, it's so important that in verse 15 we get this. And I missed this the first couple times I read through this this week, church. God states to the people, their anointing, so he's talking about the priesthood, their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So God says something about what's going on in anointing, that's actually what qualifies the priests to serve me as priests. Okay, it had nothing to do with the fact that the priests were of the tribe of Levi. Sure, God had said the Levites are going to be the ones who serve me as priests, but it's not just because they came from Levi. It's not because these were perhaps the most skilled or the most able-bodied men in all of Israel. What actually enables the people to serve God as priests is this anointing. And there's a very cool connection in Scripture between when something gets anointed or consecrated in the Old Testament, that the New Testament picks it up and says, oh, well, that means it was being filled with the Spirit of God. I'm not going to walk through every example, but I want to give you a couple of them so you get to see uh, I'm not just making this connection up. But it's very prevalent if you look at the two testaments together. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, the prophet Samuel goes to David, and he anoints him. He pours the oil on him. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day on. Isaiah 61, when the, 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 the prophet Isaiah is talking about this coming Messiah, he says of this Messiah that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. Because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor. He has sent him to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Isaiah says that the Spirit of God being filled in someone is what takes place in anointing. And the New Testament authors look at this pattern in the Old Testament and they say, uh, yeah, that is what was taking place. Jesus himself comes up and says in Luke chapter 4, he says, hey, that prophecy in Isaiah was talking about me. He says, I'm the one that's anointed. I'm the one that's filled with the Spirit. Peter recognizes this in Acts 10 as he's sharing the gospel with Cornelius. He says, Jesus is the one who was anointed, who was filled with the Spirit of God. John takes it one step further in 1 John 2. He says, hey, when Jesus left, and he left the Spirit of God to be with his disciples, to be poured out on the people. He says, he left you to be anointed too. That the same anointing Jesus received, that's what God is desiring to do in his people. So much so that Jesus even says, in my name, you're going to see this. J Jesus, Emmanuel, being God with us, but his title, Christ, Messiah. Christ being the Greek word, Messiah being the Hebrew word, birth of those Words mean the anointed one. That when we see a picture, guys, we say all this, when we look at chapter 40 and you see God telling Moses to anoint everything in oil, it's a deeply symbolic act. 
And what it's symbolic of is that you and I are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That as God is working to reconcile all things, all people to himself, as he's like making us right with him, he desires to pour out his spirit onto us. We've been walking through Acts uh, in, in our, our Tuesday night community group, and it's been cool because you start to see over and over and over again these different situations where God is actually pouring out his spirit onto the people. And it's, it's kind of God's way of saying, yeah, I've been all about this the entire time. I was showing you that in Exodus. I was showing you that in, in King David. I've been showing you that the entire time. What I want is not just to make you right with me, but to fill you with me. And why God holds these two things together is the last part, church. You can't separate the reconciliation from the anointing because of what he's after in these two things together is bearing his covenant fruit. In verses 16 through 33, there's a phrase, I'm sure you guys heard it, uh, that was repeated, I think when I counted, it was like eight times. Uh, and remember, we've been doing this exercise. When you're going through Exodus and these long stretches of, of just directions and things, you, you look for what's being repeated as a way to tell you what the author is trying to clue in on. Well, Moses repeats the phrase, all that the Lord had commanded him, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Some variation of that, eight times. Over and over and over again, he's saying Moses is doing what God asked. Now that, you may read over that the first time, okay? Because to us, we see that as obedience, right? Well, God said do it, Moses is doing it. There's, there's nothing big there. But you have to take a step back and, and think about this, church. What happened the first time God gave his covenant to his people? You got chapter 25 to chapter 31, uh, really going all the way back, chapter 19 to chapter 31. God shows up and he tells his people, this is who I am. This is what it means to be my people. This is how you're going to remember this in the rest of the world. What happens in chapter 32? Does Israel say, okay, great, we got this? No, we, we see the golden calf. We see that literally the priests are at the front of the line saying, hey, Moses, like we get that you've been saying all this, but this is actually what we'd rather do. We said in that analogy it was like a, the bride-to-be hopping in bed with the best man the night before the wedding is kind of the slap in the face that God is getting from his people as he's showing up and he's bringing to them this covenant. And they're saying, actually, we'd rather go do this. And at that point, we talked about how, well, what they, the covenant that they wanted was one with a different narrative, a different God, if you will, this one that's been all throughout Exodus, power, production, and self. That God's people gave up on God for these three things. So in chapter 40, right after chapter 32, chapter 33, chapter 34, God says, okay, you are not being faithful to me in the slightest. In fact, this is probably the biggest offense you could give me right now, Israel. And God works through it with his people, and he continues to show this reconciliation, this anointing heart. Chapter 36 and 35, all the way through 39, God reestablishes everything. Basically, he says, uh, so where were we before you guys got distracted? And he goes back and he goes through everything. What do we see in chapter 40, church? We don't see a golden calf. In fact, what we see is 
as the Lord commanded, so he did. Verse 16. Our Western minds read this and we see, okay, well, he's, he's being faithful to obey God's command. Israel would have read this and said, no, now we get it. Now we know what it means to be people of the covenant. God, you've asked us to build a space for you to come and dwell in your creation, to, to make us right with you, to make the world right with you, to fill us with your spirit, to live with you. Yes, we want this. We're going to work to make this happen. The distinction between generic obedience and this kind of like acceptance of the covenant of stepping into this life with God it becomes even more important when you consider what happens, not as a result of just obeying a command, but of saying, God, we are going to let you reconcile us. We're going to let you anoint us and we are going to bear your image. As a result of this commitment, you see in verse 33, the statement, so Moses finished the work and I thought big deal he's done like we are almost at the end of exodus he should be done at this point right the verb there when when Moses says he finished the work it's the same word that God says in Genesis 2 when he looks over his creation and on the sixth day after he makes man he says it's finished it's good. It's the same verb in Genesis 2-2 when God describes how, how he rests because he's finished. So Moses, as he's right here saying, I finished the work, what he's really saying is, no, I have now learned what it is to bear God's image. That is, God in Genesis looks back over what he's done and he said, that's it. That is perfect. That is complete. It's enough. I don't need to add anything to it. Moses has now learned to build what God has said and to look back over and says, that is good. That is enough. That is complete. I do not need to add anything to this. That Moses is now starting to look and sound and even declare the same things over his life that God is. It is more than obedience, church. He is learning to bear out God's image. And as he learns this in verse 33, we see the very next verse, God's glory comes and it fills the place. God says, now you've got it. I'm moving in. And he moves in so much so. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even get in because the glory was there. He comes he dwells with his people, and the last three verses tell us he basically takes them by the hand and he leads them through the desert. Right? This beautiful picture of as God has worked to reconcile his people, to make them right with him, as he's been anointing his people, he's filled him with his spirit, that they've finally learned to say, yes, God, what you have done and what you have made is enough for me. I will learn to bear the fruit of that, that now God comes and now God leads his people. And church, as we, as we wrap this up, I really want us to say, well, why do all three of these things have to be held together? Because it, it makes sense when we read it in scripture and we go, well, yeah, I mean, I'd I wouldn't really want to add or take away from that. But the more I thought about this this week, church, I, I've realized that our tendency when we live out our faith is to usually drop one of these things. 
So there's, there's a reason that God calls this reconciliation, this anointment, this fruit-bearing work to be held together of his people. First, let's, let's think of for a second, if we were to remove reconciliation from the equation, okay? If we take that piece out, it leads us to focus more on, on the anointment, the being filled with the Spirit, and the fruit-bearing, kind of the, the works aspect, okay? It, practically, what that looks like for many, is a, a faith life that's mostly just praying and serving, praying and serving, praying and serving, and that's, that's kind of it, okay? Now, I, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek as if praying and serving isn't a good thing. But if we drop the reconciliation piece, church, then as good as it sounds, it's really just a disguise for the narrative of self. Because if all we're doing is just saying, God, I see this issue, I need to go take care of this, help me do this. If that's the, the rhythm of our prayer and our service church, we never end up asking, hey, am I actually praying for the right thing to happen? Like, do, am I spending all my time asking God to make what I want happen? Or am I ever actually asking, God, what do you want? out of this. Where are you at work, Lord? Because I see this problem. I know you see this problem. Maybe you're not telling me to go fix this. I mean, what, what would you have me do? There's many in our faith today that we kind of operate under this mindset that, well, we've already been saved. We're already right with God. We don't need to consider the reconciliation work anymore. We just kind of assume, well, if I'm praying and I'm serving, then what I'm doing must be right, right? I'm saved. God says you cannot remove the reconciliation piece, sanctification kind of being the other big church word in there. You can't remove that piece because I'm still at work in you. I'm still teaching you what it is to be right with me. So I, I want us to consider, church, this morning, just a couple questions to see, have we removed reconciliation from the equation? How often do we ask God to change our heart when we pray? Or do we only ever ask God to just make something happen? It's two very different prayers to go to God and say, God, I'm wrestling with this. I, I, I feel like something's missing here. Where are you at work? How, how would you speak to this? And God, don't you see what's going on we need to do something. Help me to go do something. Two very different prayers. How often do we ask God to change our heart when we pray? Or do we only ask God to just help us do what we think needs to be done? And that kind of leads into the second question. How often do we evaluate our service? Guys, I'm, I, I, have, I have had a hard time with this because especially... As a pastor, when, you, when you're doing things in ministry, especially when you do something that works, you're like, well, why would we not want to do that if it's working? right? But, but if I never turn around and ask God, okay, God, is this really what you would have me do? Is this really, am I joining you in the work that you are doing? Or am I just trying to make something good happen in your name? If we never ask that of God then we've lost sight of the reconciliation work. And I'm convicting for me this week is I had to think about if God showed up and asked me to stop doing something that I love, especially when it comes to service, how readily would I say okay? 
You know, I, it's, it's hard, especially when we feel like it's a good work. But if we're understanding that part of what God is doing, what he's after in his people, is making us right with him, we have to be able to admit that we are not yet fully right with him. This tension of, yes, we are saved, but we are not yet fully sanctified. We are not yet fully glorified. How open-handed are our prayers? What happens if we remove anointment? Okay, if we lose sight of the anointment, it leads us to kind of focus solely on being right with God and doing the right thing. Salvation works. Salvation works. Very important to the life of a believer, to be sure. But this ends up being a disguise for the narrative of production. And church, to be honest, this is, this is the one that I would say, I'd have to say I struggle with this the most. Because if we forget the anointment, then we think, well, God wants me to be right with him. And God wants me to bear his image. But if you forget the fact that he also wants to fill us with his spirit to actually do this, to live this out, then we start to put the burden of actually doing all of this on ourselves. And it's, it's not too far after, church, that once we start placing that expectation on ourselves, we turn around and throw that on other people. And that tends to be how we engage our culture. Well, God has told us we need to do this, we need to do this, so I need to do it, and I need to make you also able to do it. What that leads us to do is typically beat ourselves up when we can't meet these expectations because we're putting it on ourselves, and God has not put that on ourselves. And then we're less gracious to others because they also can't meet it because God has not put that expectation on them. Church, the end of, of a production narrative is burnout. And one of the many things that COVID showed us was just how burnt out many in the American church really, truly are. Because we've been operating under this, this disguised production narrative for so long, we've forgotten that God has desired to give us His Spirit to live the life that He has called us to, church. That as we talk about being made right with God and learning to bear His image, this is not something done in a vacuum. This is not a pastor telling you, go do this on your own. If, we, if the Spirit is not in it, it will not be done, church. So for us, if, if we're going to consider, okay, how can I tell if, if I've removed anointment from it, from the equation, a good question for us is where do we get our measure for success? Where do we get our measure for success? Because what we measure as successful is going to be a major drive for what we pursue. May we be careful not to define success purely by production. Yes, salvation and yes, works. I'm, again, I'm not trying to say these things are not good. But just here in Scripture how they're all held together and to take one piece out throws everything off. The last piece, removing the fruit. Right, if, we, if we lose sight of this image that we're supposed to bear and our focus is solely on being right with God and being filled with His Spirit, I would say this this might not be the one that we tend to struggle with the most, but this is, to me, the most dangerous one. Because 
it sounds very good that we would want to be right with God and filled with His Spirit. But if we never, if we are never continually confronted with the image of the one that we're made to bear, what the fruit bearing actually looks like, then church, what we've done is we've made a very nice disguise for the narrative of power. I mean, this is, this is how you get Christian leaders saying, well, I'm right with God, and I'm filled with His Spirit. So whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm going for, whatever I'm teaching, that must, it must be good, right? I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm right with God. How could that not be a good thing, what I want to have happen? And as I'm saying it, my, you probably have a similar gut instinct to me. I say, well, I've never said that to God. I've never said, God, I, I know better. I know I'm not a perfect person. There's no way I would say everything that I'm after is a good thing. But this is such a, a serpent-like, a sneaky narrative church that we've got. The classic biblical example of one who fell to this was King David. This is a man who's described as a man after God's own heart. He's the shepherd king of Israel. He knows God. He walks with God. You read the Psalms and you say, that is a guy who's tight with God. And yet this guy has an affair with a married woman and orders her husband sent to the front of the battle lines to be killed. Doesn't have any issue with doing either of these things. In fact, it's not in the narrative until the prophet Nathan goes to David and says, okay, David, let me tell you a story. Let's say there was a rich guy that had all these sheep and there was a poor man that had just one sheep and the rich guy saw that guy's one sheep and went over and said, I'm taking your sheep as mine. Nathan's, or Nathan tells the story to David and David says, well, well that shouldn't happen. The, that rich man should be thrown in prison and killed for taking what belonged to the... How dare he do that? And Nathan says, uh, that's you, David. That David, in this mindset of, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the king of Israel, right? I'm the leader of God's people. I'm the man after God's own heart. He never realizes that in, in wickedness, God, and this is not just like something little, church, this is adultery and murder. You've seen in Exodus how highly God values life. David literally commits like two of the worst sins that are, you know, clearly do not value life. And has no problem with it. No problem until he gets called out. Church, that power narrative, if that could happen to David, I don't want to be naive and think it could never happen to me. And I've watched, there's been many church pastors over the past several years that you, you realize this narrative of power has been in their hearts more than we've realized. Because at some point they've used their positions of, well, I'm right with God and I'm filled with his spirit. Therefore, what I'm teaching you or what I'm asking you to do, that must be a good thing. It has not led them to shepherd or to love God's people well. And this one is, because it's so hard, church, I, I don't really have a question because this might not be one that we're even capable of catching within us. David couldn't catch it. And you hear me talk about the importance of community, why God is calling not just one person to follow him, but a nation of people. He says, y'all are going to need one another to turn and say, hey, 
You know, I heard you talking about so-and-so over there. I heard the way you were talking about the situation. I watched the way you handled, you know, that thing over there with the other guy. That really didn't look like Christ. That really didn't look like God. We need the community to be able to help us with this. But I, what I can challenge you to do, church, is something that I spent some time doing this this morning. I was convicted this may be something I need to have regularly within me. But Psalm 51 is the psalm that David pens after he's been called out by David. It is a beautiful kind of, it's, it's like the whole picture of the gospel. You've got David recognizing his sin. You've got him going to God. You've got repentance. You've got forgiveness. You've got the whole gamut there. But 51 verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12 say, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the prayer that David has to say, God, I was not even aware of how there was another narrative in my heart that was leading me to just self-destruct. And so maybe that needs to be a passage that we pray with some regularity, church, as we move forwards to say we've, we've been in this this beautiful season together of studying God's word every week, seeing what does it mean to be God's people, right? To, to be made right with him and to be filled with his spirit. Over the next several months, uh, I've kind of shared this with the leadership team, but the, the direction of the preaching is going to hopefully start to take the Old Testament covenant and move it more into Jesus, where we start seeing, okay, all these things, all who Jesus was, what he's asked us to do, is it all fulfills this. So if we seem to be getting a little bit more practical in nature over the next couple months, may this still be our heart. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Church, the life of a disciple is a life that keeps this together. If we're devoted to God, it speaks to reconciliation. Right? If we love someone, we want to be right with them. If we love someone, it, it should eat at us when we're not right with them. So if, we, if we're devoted to God as a disciple of Christ, we want to be right with him. Developing, developing speaks to anointment, right? If, if we're going to be right with God, we should want his life. I don't want to be right with God so I can go do my own thing. I want to be filled with the Spirit. So developing speaks to anointment. Deployed speaks to fruit bearing. Man, all of this is, is purposed. We want to bear the image of the covenant that we're in. We're made, we're deployed to bear his image. So as we consider, church, how chapter 40 kind of says, guys, this is what God is after of his people. And we realize, well, hopefully, that's what we've been saying since day one here, church, when we put the vision together. I encourage you to pray with me this morning. Oh, Lord God, the first act of calling is by thy command and thy word. Come unto me. Return to me. We could say, be reconciled to me. The second act is to let in light so that I see that I am called particularly and perceive the sweetness of the command as well as its truth, that I've been anointed, Father, in your spirit, that in regard to thy great love of the sinner, you've invited me to come, though vile, 
in regard to the end of the command, which is fellowship with thee. You've asked me to be with you, Lord. In regard to thy promise in the gospel, which is all of grace. Therefore, Lord, I need not search to see if I'm elect or loved, for if I turn, thou wilt come to me. Christ has promised me fellowship if I take him, and the Spirit will pour himself out on me, abolishing sin and punishment, assuring me of strength to persevere. It is thy pleasure to help all that pray for grace and to come to thee for it. When my heart is unsavory with sin, with sorrow, with darkness, with hell, only thy free grace can help me act with deep abasement under a sense of unworthiness. Let me lament for forgetting daily to come to thee and cleanse me from the deceit of bringing my heart to a duty because the act pleased me or appealed to reason. Grant that I may be salted with suffering with every exactment tempered to my soul, every rod excellently fitted to my back to chastise, to humble, to break me. Let me not overlook the hand that holds the rod, as thou didst not let me forget the rod that fell on Christ. But that was also the hand that drew me to him. In your holy name we pray, Lord. Amen.